Thank you for downloading this podcast from Lafayette Community Church. We hope this message inspires you to know and live the life you were designed for, because we exist to help people just like you discover life in Christ. Hey, we've been in the series for a couple weeks now that I've titled, I Want to Go Back. And this is uh, one of those moments where I think a lot of us would just like life to go back to normal, or maybe not even back to normal. Some of you, I think, probably at this point in time want life to go back to a simpler time, go all the way back to an easier time. I used a stuffed animal for this graphic just because I thought, you know what? The simplest times in my life, I was a kid, my mom and dad, every single holiday, whether it was uh, Valentine's Day or Christmas or Easter, they would always buy me a stuffed animal. It was like a family thing. And then I, to this day, have a, such a difficult time getting rid of anything that looks like it might possibly have, you know, feelings. And so, you know, getting rid of stuffed animals was terrible for me. And uh, so I still have my original Winnie the Pooh. I've told you about that. I've never brought him to church. Um, but one of these days, you know, I think I probably should. I, I had a photo of him once. But uh, anyway, so I never had this stuffed animal. This is a stuffed animal that I uh, um, found in our house more recently. But I wanted to share with you a story. Last week, I shared with you a story about when I first met my wife. And when Jen and I first met, because, uh, you know, last week was my anniversary, and all of you can cheer for that again in the comments. I think that's fine. Yeah, thank you very much. But uh, so last week, I shared a story from that day, and I wanted to share another story from that very same day. Because, you see, Jen and I frequently go back to phases of nostalgia where we will talk about the past. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories from the first summer that we met, way back in 1995, was when I convinced the entire college group to go to a movie together primarily because I wanted to ask Jen on a date, but uh, was a little bit uncomfortable just directly asking for a date. So I convinced the entire group to go out to a movie together. And then I said, we should all bring snacks. This is part of my strategy. It all developed in my brain really quickly. But I was like, we should all bring snacks. And so I talked to all the different people. I was like, what kind of snack can you smuggle in? What kind of snack can you smuggle in? And then I said, I want to bring some chocolate chip cookies. And so it was my plan to bring some chocolate chip cookies. And everybody was like, that's a great idea. And I said, there's only one problem. I don't know how to make them. Jen, do you know how to make chocolate chip cookies? And she said, yes, that she did. And I was like, would you maybe want to come over and help me? And so I coordinated this date. And then I coordinated this special date before the other date where she would come over to my apartment and make chocolate chip cookies with me. And the cookies we ended up making were green I don't know how that happened. They, they turned out green. Anyway, that's not the story I wanted to share with you. That's the story that I think is a great story from our first you know, week or two of meeting each other. But the story she always brings up is the story of that very first day. See, I remember the moment I came through the door and I turned the chair around backwards and I said, hi, Steve. But she remembers the moment most clearly at the end of that evening when I asked her friend for her phone number and I asked Jen for her email address. 
And Jen always brings that up to me as if, Jeff, why in the world are you asking for her phone number and you just asked for my email address? Well, listen, by this time you should know everything I did back then when I saw Jen was completely strategic in my mind. And at the end of that day, I had one fear and one fear alone. The fear that I would never see this woman again. And I had to have something permanent. Okay, so now some of you don't understand this, so I'll explain it a little bit. In 1995, phones were not permanent. In 1995, if you lived in one house, you had one phone number. And if you lived in a different location, you had a different phone number because phones stayed put. There was no such thing as a mobile phone. Yeah, okay, so Zach on Saved by the Bell had a a cell phone. But no normal human being had a mobile phone, a phone number that would move with you. And so I was terrified that if I got Jen's phone number, then somehow she would move back to Indiana and I would lose touch with her forever. And then, you know, I'd have to come to Purdue and track down every single Jennifer, which would have been a lot. So anyway, my strategy was get the email address because she was nerdy enough that she had one. And I was nerdy enough that I had one. My strategy was get the email address first. Now, maybe in the comments, you can debate whether my strategy was the better strategy or not. She, to this day, feels like I should have asked for her phone number. That's the more romantic uh, and appropriate thing to do. And I, to this day, contend that email was the only way I could guarantee I maintained contact with this woman in the future. But anyway, I wanted to share that with you just because I like to reminisce. And maybe you like to reminisce. But there's a problem with reminiscing. There's a problem with nostalgia. There's a problem with all that. And of course, the problem is that you weren't made to live in the past. And in the past, that's the place of regret. That's the place of longing. That's the place of all these things that slow us down from where we are and where God is leading us. And so a couple weeks ago, I shared this phrase with you. And it's kind of the theme phrase for this series. Your past isn't something to live in or get back to, but it's something to build on and live from. I chose for this series to look at the book of 2 Peter, because 2 Peter is a book where, you know, Peter doesn't actually talk about any of our past problems. He doesn't directly address issues like forgiveness and bitterness. He doesn't directly address issues like, you know, how do you deal with regret or nostalgia? He doesn't talk about those things. Instead, what Peter does is he says there are two major things you have got to remember from your past. And those two things will propel you into your future. All the other things from your past are far less significant, but these two things that you need to remember from your past will propel you into your future. And the first thing we looked at last week, Peter said that you need to remember desperately, you need to remember that Jesus, the divine son of God, Lord of heaven and earth, died for you and you are forgiven. See, the first thing you need to remember If you are slowed down in your spiritual journey, if you're not experiencing any spiritual growth, it's not about you needing to put more effort into it. It's not about you needing to look back to your past and feel regretful over something that you did wrong. It's about you coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, thank you for cleansing me and forgiving me. It's about you recognizing that your sins have been paid for in the past. You see, this letter was written by Peter immediately before he was killed. 
He knew he was going to be killed. He knew he was going to be a martyr for the faith. And he said, there are two things I have to remind you of. Both of them he brings up in chapter one. One of them was remember what Jesus did for you. That's what we looked at last week. And now today we're going to look at the next thing. What is the next thing that Peter says you have to remember? Well, to summarize it, he says you have to remember the reasons for your faith. Why do you believe in Jesus? Why should you believe in Jesus? And he gives us a couple very important reasons. Let me share with you this verse. It says in Second Peter, first chapter, he says, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Peter here at the very beginning says, you have to know something. I didn't make this up, and I didn't hear it from someone else. I didn't make this up, and I didn't hear it from someone else. Peter says, I need you to know, this isn't a story that came to me. This is a story I lived in. I talked about this a couple weeks ago when we mentioned Peter actually being on that mountain when Jesus was transfigured and the voice of God said, this is my son. We talked a little bit about that two weeks ago. I shared with you the whole story. But what's interesting about this moment here is that Peter isn't trying to say, oh, I just remember that time. That was such a great time. Let me tell you about that time. He's not even telling them the story. His point isn't to tell a story. His point is to say he was an eyewitness. Take a look at this. This is how he finishes that section. He says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The first thing that you need to know, Peter says your first reason for belief, your first reason for the faith is eyewitnesses. This is one of the most amazing things about Christianity. You see, Christianity is not a faith like any other faith on the planet. All the faiths that exist on this planet, all the religious schemes, basically can be boiled down to one conceptual thought. They began with a story. Usually some um, charismatic individual shows up on the scene and he says, oh my goodness, everybody, I have a story to tell you. For a guy named Gautama, His story was that he was sitting meditating when all of a sudden he received enlightenment. And in that moment of enlightenment, he began to realize some things about the world. And so he came down from the mountain and he began to tell people about his enlightenment. And he became known as the enlightened one, or the word we use for him is the Buddha. And so Buddhism arose from a guy who says, something happened to me, let me tell you the story. Islam arose from a guy named Muhammad who said he had an experience with God and God revealed to him a whole bunch of truths. And so Muhammad would receive these truths and then he would tell it to other people. Even Moses, Moses was a fellow who would say, I saw a burning bush. There was an experience I had at the burning bush and now I'm going to tell you the story. Every world faith began with a story except for one, Jesus. Because see, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't say, hey, everybody, I got some enlightenment. Let me tell you about it. You know what he says? He says, come and follow me. See, everything that Jesus did 
wasn't about, let me give you information. Let me give you some more details. Everything Jesus did was about bringing a community around him into relationship. The faith of Jesus doesn't start with a story. It starts with a community. Now, the reason that's so important is that in most cases, when the leader of a faith dies, the people who have accepted the story continue to tell the story because the story is significant. The story is important. If you have a story that really impacts your heart, it doesn't matter if the storyteller is dead. You can continue to tell the story. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I've got information for you. He doesn't say, I've got a story for you. He says, I've got me for you. Come and follow me. And that creates a really interesting promise. It creates an interesting problem. You see, the faith of Jesus was so tied to the living Jesus that his death ended it. Listen, on Thursday, there were a lot of believers. On Friday afternoon, there were a lot of believers. But when Jesus died, there were no believers. Jesus hung on the cross for three hours. And as he was on the cross, there were a few people who still believed maybe he's going to come down. A few people who still wondered maybe he's going to call down angels from heaven. But when he died, when the soldier pierced his side, when Jesus was laid in the tomb of Joseph from Arimathea, the faith was done. You see, when you build your faith on, I'm the person you follow, and then you die, No one can follow you anymore. There's no following of the person when the person is motionless. On Saturday, there were no Christians. On Saturday, there were no believers. And so the important thing for you and me to remember is that when Jesus died, the faith died. And the reason that's so important is that your faith doesn't depend on someone telling some story that makes sense to some person. Your faith depends on eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Jesus and believed. See, for them, seeing was believing. I know for you and for me, you and I believe this faith based on a story. But we believe this faith based on a story from not just one individual person who had something happen. We believe this based on a story from eyewitnesses, a whole crowd of them. Listen, Peter, James, John, Matthew, Mark, all of these people, do you realize that 100% of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, all of the authors of the New Testament were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Not just one person who got a good story and told a story. Every one of them was a different witness to the resurrection. Sometimes people look at the different accounts of the resurrection and they say, well, wait a minute. These things disagree with each other. You know, you've got Mark over here who says one thing and Matthew over here who says another thing and Luke who says another thing. I'll give you an example. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, we have seven different things that he says. But none of the Gospels share all seven of them. We get those seven phrases by picking and choosing from the different Gospels because each of the Gospels tell us just a little bit more. Some of the Gospels might say, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Some of the Gospels say, Jesus says, uh, 
Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Some of them say, it is finished. And so there are these different phrases that Jesus says from the cross, and none of the Gospels have every single one of the phrases exactly the same. And so someone might be, well, that's a contradiction. I'm saying, no, it's not a contradiction. Those are eyewitnesses. Those are people who all wrote down the part of what Jesus did on the cross that made the most sense to them, that felt the most meaningful to them. They all wrote it down. That's the way eyewitnesses work. And you don't have to trust one story. You trust the eyewitnesses. There's a quote from a guy named Andy Stanley that I listen to a lot. He's a pastor in Georgia. He says this, we don't believe the resurrection because of the Bible. We have the Bible because of the resurrection. Listen, we don't believe in the resurrection because the Bible tells us so. We have a Bible because of the resurrection. On Saturday, there were no believers. Why would anyone ever write down a story about a guy who claimed to be everything and then died? Why would anyone write down a story about a guy who claimed to be God and then died? Why would anyone ever write a story like that? Jesus never said, write this down and remember it forever. Jesus never said, here's the truth, you got to tell this story to other people. He never said that. He only said, follow me. Believe in me. And when he's dead, it's dead. But the faith came back to life when Jesus came back to life. And this is what Peter says. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses. Or, as we already saw, he says, we were with him on the sacred mountain. The first reason for your faith is that it is based on eyewitnesses, plural, of moments in time, in particular, the one greatest moment of all, when a man who claimed to be God predicted his death and resurrection and pulled it off. But Peter tells you there's a second reason that you should have faith. The second reason for your faith is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament is filled with a lot of prophecy, and sometimes it's tempting for us in the New Testament times to disregard the Old Testament because the Old Testament has some other things in it that are distasteful to us. Peter says this at the very next section of chapter one. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter says, listen, I'm a Jewish person, and I want you to know, he's not writing to Jewish people, he's writing to a whole bunch of different kinds of Christians. He says, I have this prophetic message, and you also now have it, and the prophetic message is completely reliable. Now listen, I know where you're coming from. There are some of you who are out there, and you look at your Old Testament, and you see things that confuse you, and you're like, can this possibly be God's word to me? Is this really something reliable? Is this really something I can trust? I'm a New Testament Christian. I don't really like that Old Testament stuff. Maybe you've felt that way before. Maybe you feel that way now. But Peter here is saying the prophetic message is something completely reliable. And he's not just talking about those few moments in the Old Testament where something is prophesied about the future. He's talking about the entirety of his scripture, the Old Testament, all of the scriptures that were written, he says it's completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it. But he says something interesting. 
He says it's like a light shining in a dark place. Have you ever been in one of those experiences where the whole room is dark and way off in the corner there's a tiny little light and from where you are you can't tell if that light is a reflection off of some shiny object or if that light is a candle or if that light is a tiny little LED on one of your electronic devices that you forgot was over there. You can't tell what's the source of that light. You just can see the light. You can be a long ways away in pitch darkness and if there's a light anywhere in your field of vision you'll be able to see it. A light from a long distance away is visible but you won't know what it is. But sometimes... You're in that dark place and you see a hint of something and then the whole light turns on and you see what it is and everything makes perfect sense. Sometimes the dawn rises and it all is clear. And that's exactly the way prophecy works. When you're reading prophecy, you have no idea what it really is. You might think you know, you might have an idea of what it possibly could be, but you don't really know until the moment it happens And you realize, oh, that's it. This happens all the time with Jesus. In fact, the prophecy in the Old Testament proves Jesus. Today I want to take you to a number of Old Testament prophetic passages that prove Jesus was who he claimed to be. That prove Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. I want to take you to a few of them because these Old Testament prophecies prove that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Look at this one. It says in Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What's interesting about Isaiah 7, I don't have a lot of time for this, but what's interesting about Isaiah 7 is that Isaiah is making a prophecy that a young girl would have a child, that a young girl would get pregnant and have a child in the normal way. In fact, the word translated here as virgin can sometimes be translated as young girl. And in fact, this happens in Isaiah 9. A young girl does get pregnant in the normal way. She's married. In fact, it's Isaiah's wife and she has a child. And they name this child an awesome name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I love that name. It's great. Anyway, he says there's going to be a virgin who conceives and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the time in Isaiah 9, they all thought this was fulfilled. It just so happens that many, many years later, there would be a woman visited by an angel who said, you will conceive. And she says, but I don't have a husband. I've never been with a man and I'm not planning on getting together with a man until I get married to my husband who then later on says, I won't sleep with you until that baby's born because as a virgin, she conceives. No one could have predicted that. It was outlandish. But for some reason, Isaiah uses the word that can be translated both young girl and also virgin, and it takes on greater significance later on when Jesus is born. Or in Isaiah chapter 9, we read this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. What's interesting about this is that he says Galilee of the nations, You see, in the Old Testament, there was this word that the Hebrews used that would be translated nations. By the time the Old Testament gets translated into Greek, they use the Greek word ethne. It just so happens that by the time the Greeks were, you know, 
their language was being imposed on the nation of Israel, by the time the word ethne was being used to be all the nations, Israel had a very strong sense of us versus them. Israel knew that they were Israel and all the other nations were them. It was us and them. In fact, they had a special word for them. The them word was nations. The them word was ethne. In your New Testament, it's usually translated Gentiles. It just so happens that there was a city, a region called Galilee of the Gentiles, in which there was a city named Nazareth, where a carpenter named Jesus grew up. And there is no way, there is no way that Isaiah could have known that nations would be the same word translated Gentiles later on and that Galilee of the Gentiles would be the name of the region where Nazareth would be, where a carpenter named Jesus would be raised. There's no way Isaiah could have known that. And yet, he uses the right word. But keep going. He says, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. There is no way Isaiah could have known that a man who was raised in Galilee of the Gentiles would be referred to as Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And yet it happened. Or later on in Isaiah, Isaiah 53 It says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. That is a weird word, pierced. You know, when Isaiah writes chapter 53, he doesn't know that crucifixion's a thing. This is 400 years before crucifixion becomes a thing. People weren't killed by piercing. I mean, they might have been killed by stabbing. They might have been killed by impaling. They might have been killed by beheading, but they weren't killed by piercing. That's a weird word. It's a word that we will see also shows up in Psalm 22. But nonetheless, he's talking about a man who was pierced for the sins of other people. Or take a look at this later on in that same chapter. He says, this man is assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. How would Isaiah know that eventually there would be a man who was killed next to some wicked people, but yet was buried in a rich person's tomb? That doesn't make sense. Why would a person be with the wicked people when he dies and also with the rich people when he dies? That doesn't make a lot of sense because, see, back then they always thought that the wicked people were the poor people and the righteous people were blessed by God to be rich. And so it doesn't make sense that this guy would somehow be around wicked people in his death and buried in a rich person's grave. Or that after he suffered, he would see the light of life. There's no way Isaiah could have known that there would be a man who would suffer and die like this and after his suffering would see the light of life again. I want to take you to Psalms. We find this in Psalm chapter 2. The writer of Psalm chapter 2 says, You are my son. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Somehow the writer of Psalms knew that there would be a future day when the Lord would declare to some future king, you are my son. 
Today I've become your father. Peter would quote that almost, but he wasn't quoting Psalm Psalm 2. He was quoting his own personal experience standing on the mountain when the Father in heaven said, you're my son. Or take a look at this one from Psalm 16. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Somehow the psalmist had a vision, an idea, a possible wondering, a prophetic word that a person would someday be dead but wouldn't see decay. Or here's Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the things Jesus says from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The writer of Psalm 22 could not have known what the people standing around the cross actually said to Jesus, but he quotes it a thousand years before it happens. Or he says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. A thousand years before it happens, Psalm 22, the writer knows about what happens during crucifixion, that your internal organs basically dissolve. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. That's, that's a weird one. We've got a lot of copies of the Old Testament. The oldest copies we have of the Old Testament are the copies that are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. But before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written down, and they're written down mostly in Hebrew, but before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written down and hidden in those caves in the Dead Sea area, There's an older version of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint that dates from about 100 years before Jesus. The oldest copies we have of the Hebrew version of the Old Testament date from about 1,000 years after Jesus. And you know what's interesting? The oldest copies we have of Psalm 22 use the word pierce here. They pierced my hands and my feet. But the Hebrew ones that date from 1,000 years after Jesus have a different word. If you look in the footnotes of your NIV, you'll see the other translation. And I just wanted to let you know that that other version, that other translation comes from a thousand years later, a thousand years after Jesus, a thousand years after people had been telling for a long time, did you know there was a man whose hands and feet were pierced exactly like Psalm 22? And the translators of the Hebrew text, the preservers of the Hebrew text didn't like the fact that Psalm 22, a thousand years before crucifixion use the word pierce here and so they changed the word but the oldest copies of the old testament include the word pierce and how in the world could the writer of psalm 22 have known that in the future there would be a thing called crucifixion where piercing would happen and then isaiah in chapter 53 would use the same phrase he was pierced for our transgressions and then just to cap it all off in psalm 22 we read this they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment And I know you don't think that's as significant as the piercing of the hands and the feet, but I got to tell you something. There are a lot of people who read the Old Testament prophecies and they say, oh, well, guess how that happens? You see, the guys in the New Testament who love Jesus, they wanted to make Jesus's story fit the story of the Old Testament. And so they wrote Jesus's story in a way that would fit the Old Testament prophecies and make it look like Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. And so since the word pierced was 
was chosen in Psalm 22, we're going to write the story of Jesus as if he were crucified. Some people believe that. They think the New Testament story was written to match the Old Testament prophecies. And I got to tell you, it didn't happen that way. Because you know how I told you all four of the Gospels have different angles on what happened around the cross? Do you know one thing they all agree on? All four of the Gospels share one thing in common. Every one of them, all four of them say, the guys at the foot of the cross cast lots for Jesus' clothing. All four of them. But you know what else is interesting? Only one of them knew it came from Psalm 22. The last one written. John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us this story. They say the soldiers cast lots for Jesus' clothing. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't refer to Psalm 22. In other words, they didn't know Psalm 22 used this language. If you know that a person today is fulfilling prophecy before, don't you tell people? They didn't say it, which means they didn't know it. But John, the last gospel that was written, by by the point in time he writes his gospel, he knows that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. And so he tells us, this fulfills Psalm 22. See, they didn't write the Jesus story to match the Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophecy said things that were fulfilled in Jesus. But you know that tells us one more thing about Jesus. You see, if the Old Testament prophecy proves that Jesus is who he says he was, then that means Jesus himself proves the authenticity of the prophets. Jesus proves that that guy who wrote Psalm 22 was a prophet. Jesus proves that Isaiah was a prophet. Jesus proves that all those other passages in the Old Testament that talk about him, they are prophecy, which means they were written by prophets. Look at what Peter says. He says this, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophets didn't make it up. The prophets didn't interpret it. The prophets just wrote what God led them to write even when they didn't understand what they were writing. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we even see this. Moses says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that's a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. Bottom line, if someone says something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, They're not talking from the Lord. You can ignore them. But if someone says what's going to happen and it happens, they're speaking the words of God and you should pay attention to them. You see, we don't believe this faith because of a story. We believe this faith because there was a crowd of eyewitnesses that experienced this life together. Not just one person who says something, but a crowd of people who experience something together. And we believe this because the Old Testament, 400 years, 1,000 years before Jesus, says things that were fulfilled in Jesus and only in Jesus. And 
On top of that, because of who Jesus is, we understand that those guys in the Old Testament were writing things beyond themselves that we need to pay attention to today. I'll put it to you this way. The glory of Jesus is a well-established fact from eyewitnesses. And because of that, you also have reasons to trust your Bible. The glory of Jesus is a well-established fact from eyewitnesses. And because of that, you have reasons to trust your Bible. But there's one more thing. Those are the things that unite us. See, we could be divided about a lot of stuff, especially right now where it seems like our world is more polarized than ever. We could be divided about a lot of things. But Peter would say, you need to hang on to a few things that you remember. You need to remember that the righteous Son of God died for you and that you are forgiven. And you need to remember that all that we know about Jesus is fact from eyewitnesses. And that because of Jesus and because of those eyewitnesses, we can trust what's in the Bible. See, Jesus was there with people. And those eyewitnesses wrote the New Testament to tell us about Jesus and the significance of his life. And so we can trust them because they were with Jesus at the time. But then also, the Old Testament was giving us information about Jesus thousands of years before he even showed up. And so you can trust it too. And those are the things that unite us. Not what roof is over our heads. It's the message of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, and the fact that we have a reliable, trustworthy book of Scripture. Listen, I hope today that you've been encouraged by these things. We're going to go to a time of question and answer, so I'm going to ask for Chuck to go ahead and switch the screen over here so that we can see the questions that you guys have put through, and uh, we'll be able to, I'll put them up here on the screen, and whatever's at the top, I have to answer. So um, we'll, just, we'll just see what happens there. Uh, I've got my tablet here with all the questions here. I'm not looking at the YouTube chat just because that one scares me. But uh, I'm looking at this set of questions. Do we have that coming up there? There it is. Okay, I was looking at the back window. What is your most, most nostalgic LCC memory? Um, oh, and that box thing came up. I was hoping that wouldn't come up. Charlie, I'm going to get you when I come home. But uh, no, just kidding. Anyway, uh, what is your most nostalgic LCC memory? Uh, let me think. So I would say one of my favorite memories is um, a day way, way, way early on before we even had our first um, Sunday morning experience. There were a bunch of us, me, Kyle Benner, his mom, Pam, uh, the Shackelford family, my wife, and uh, some of the kids were involved too. And on a Black Friday, we brought a thousand plastic coffee mugs and we served coffee to the people at Walmart, coffee and hot chocolate to the people at Walmart. That's one of my favorite memories. And uh, I I don't know if it's my favorite memory, but it's the first one that came to my mind right now because I've got a picture on our website even of us being servants to the community. I just love that story. Box without hinges, key or lid, yet golden treasure inside and hid. I don't remember. I think this is a riddle from Lord of the Rings. I think it's referring to the ring in Frodo's pocket, um, where, excuse me, Bilbo's pocket, where he's trying to say, my pocket is the box and the golden treasure is the ring that's in my pocket. Uh, I I don't remember. Uh, I think 
It's probably something else. I don't remember. Let's move on to the next one. God rested on the seventh day. Why do we set aside the first day for worship and celebration of the Sabbath? I love this question. Thank you guys for asking it. Okay, I love this question because I know someone who actually, well, I know a lot of people who actually believe that Saturday is the day we are supposed to worship because God rested on the seventh day. Why do we set aside the first day for worship and celebration of the Sabbath? I'll give it to you this way. For, uh, there are a couple things that go into, into this. The first thing is that Jesus himself never treated Saturday as if Saturday was a holy thing. Jesus treated the Sabbath day as a holy thing given by God to people for their rest. You see, God rested on the seventh day. And yes, that's one of the reasons why we honor the Sabbath day, one out of every seven. That's one of the reasons, but it's not the only reason. In the Ten Commandments, we see two different versions of the Ten Commandments. One is given in Exodus chapter 20. The other one shows up in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we've got two different um, expressions of the Ten Commandments. They're exactly the same in almost every respect except for the Sabbath commandment. In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath commandment, the rationale for it is because you're no longer slaves. In Exodus, the rationale is because God rested. In other words, the Sabbath, according to Jesus himself, was something God created for people. He doesn't need to rest. He's not resting now. God is working now. But he created the Sabbath for people so that they could experience this rhythm of rest. So Jesus works on the Sabbath some days when he heals people. The Saturday is not a holy day. Paul himself would say in the New Testament that some people are still honoring certain days as if they're special. They are not special. Days are not special. It is not Saturday that is special. It is Sabbath that is special. And the difference is Sabbath is a day we set aside for worship and rest. Saturday is another day where the sun comes up and goes down. And so Christians early on, when Jesus rose to life on day number one, they decided to start worshiping on day number one. Jesus died on a Friday. It was Sabbath that they all rested and metaphorically Jesus rests in the tomb. And then on Sunday, he comes back to life. And so Christians started celebrating Jesus's resurrection every single Sunday. It then just later on happened that uh, the Roman government instituted a plan where we would have a weekend where the Jews could worship on Saturday and Christians could worship on Sunday. And so then we ended up with a weekend, two days at the end. I, I think it's a great idea. I like that. God's plan is six and one, but we today live in a world of five and two, and that's kind of nice. But anyway, that's why we worship on Sundays. How do we make sure visitors feel welcome now that our church groups have become stronger with the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. I hope that our church groups have become stronger. I hope that our individual core groups have become stronger. And I hope that as a result of that, some of you have become more mature. And I hope that as a result of your increasing maturity in the midst of this pandemic, some of you will, will be willing to step up and lead and host more groups so that when, when it comes time for us to be meeting together again in person and encouraging people to do groups together, that we will be able to launch more groups because we have more mature people. One of the sad things about normal church life is that you can show up and feel like you've done something. One of the good things about pandemic life is that there's no place for you to show up to. You have to own your own spiritual growth. 
And either you're growing or you're not. I hope that you're growing. And I hope that you are leveraging this moment of challenge in your life to grow spiritually in ways that you haven't before. And I hope that as a result of that, you will come back to this building when the time is right as people who are more mature in your faith and more ready to welcome others in. It's one of the reasons why I want to encourage you to do the prayer walking thing so that you can be out and about in your neighborhood praying for the people that you will later be reaching out to. Do you have a rough idea for when physical church is going to happen? I do have a rough idea, but the problem is the rough idea isn't based on the calendar. The rough idea is based on other metrics. Some of you might not know this, but uh, the guy who's our Tippecanoe County health commissioner on coronavirus stuff, his name is Jeremy Adler. He's my doctor. And since I trust him with my own health, I kind of trust him with your health too. And so I'm going to rely on recommendations they have. Some of the recommendations they have are things like social distancing, smaller numbers of people, avoiding large gatherings in poorly ventilated areas as long as possible. And so I'm going to try to trust their recommendations as much as possible. I said this in a blog post that I put out this last week. I'd encourage you to read it. But since I don't know yet if I'm contagious, until the day when I feel like I can be around you comfortably, then I'm uncomfortable with having you be around me. The idea is that I don't want to infect someone in our church. And since I'm the person who talks to the majority of people and connects with the majority of people, it would be super awkward for us to all come together here and then leave in silence without talking to people. Listen, I bring worship team people into this room, and it's all we can do to keep them four feet away from each other. So I'm not exactly sure about a time frame. My hope, my honest hope, is that we will get ramped up testing of both virus and antibodies in our county super fast, or that a vaccine will come super fast so that we can be more comfortable with each other. Especially since Sunday morning is designed to be a time where we welcome people new to the faith into our fellowship, I want to make sure we can be as welcoming as possible. And so there's a number of things. I don't have a rough estimate on calendar dates. I just have a rough estimate on the kinds of things we're looking for in our community to sort of make this work a little bit better for us. I have to ask for your forgiveness for the things that we've said or done wrong, and I have to ask for your patience that you continue to grow spiritually on your own as we go through this. And frankly, if any of you want some personal practical encounters with me, we can do that. I'd love to go out for a cup of coffee with you if a coffee house opens up for people sitting down. I'd love to meet with you over Zoom or, or Facebook chat or whatever if you want to. I'm available to you in whatever way we can make work, but as far as us all being together in the same room singing songs and stuff, that's still going to be a little ways away. Why is Christmas a defined date and Easter is never a defined date? 13! Wow! Okay, this will be my last one and it should go pretty quickly. The answer is that early on in the history of the church, there was during the month of December a decision made by some church leader, I don't know who it was, but way early on, we're talking like a couple hundred years after Jesus um, ascended back to heaven, where they said, we want to have a special Sunday where we celebrate Jesus, where we celebrate the Christ. They called it the Christ Mass. And they decided to have that particular celebration of the Christ Mass on December 25th. There are a number of reasons why they chose that. One of the reasons is that it's very near the, the winter solstice, excuse me, the winter 
Yeah, the winter solstice. And they decided that they were going to do that. And so somehow early on, the date, December 25, was picked. And so they had the Christ Mass on December 25th every year. Eventually, it became known as Christmas. And it was always on December 25th. What's interesting to note is that we don't have a church service on that day anymore. We do our church service on the Sunday near it. And then we also have a Christmas Eve service and those sorts of things. But anyway, that's how December 25th was picked. The reason Easter is never a defined date is that Passover was never a defined date. Passover was always defined as one of the, it was like the first week, it was day 14 actually, of the first month of the Jewish year. And the Jewish year was based on moons. And so what they did, the early Christians said, we want to help people celebrate Easter around the time Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so we're going to follow the Passover calendar. And so now today, modern Jews and Christians are not perfectly in sync. This last year, they were out of sync, but most years they're in sync for whatever reasons, it's based on the moon. So Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox, if you care. So the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. That's why it moves around a lot. Um, I would not require testing before people being allowed in the building, but I would, inc- I would probably require testing before people are working in Kidopolis. I'm not exactly sure about that. I would need to talk to people who, who are doing the testing to find out how accessible that is. Do, will Kidopolis be open when we start physical church again? That's one of my goals. I, I don't want to start physical church again until we can do physical church the way we want to do it, which includes uh, having exceptional child care. So that's one of the things. Let's go ahead and shut down the questions. Thank you guys for participating in that. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.